listening to the Ed Reach Network. Ed Gamer, episode 49 on Ed Reach. Games and Learning update with Dr. James Paul G. This is Ed Gamer for Saturday, April 21st, 2012. Ed Gamer is part of the EdReach Network, edreach.us, giving education a voice. A big voice. This show is dedicated to education gaming on any platform. We will give you the education angle on any type of games ranging from tabletops to MMOs. We will discuss how these games impact student learning and how they can be used effectively within the classroom. I'm Zach. I'm Jerry. And our guest today is Dr. James Paul G. Mr. G, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, I'm a professor at Arizona State University, and I am a linguist by training who for the last eight or nine years has also worked on uh, video games and learning. Very good. Jerry? My name is Jerry James. I'm a visual arts teacher at Schaumburg, Illinois. And my name is Zach Gilbert, and I'm your host. I'm a sixth grade social studies language arts teacher from Normal, Illinois. Well, as you can tell, uh, we have a special guest today. And uh, Dr. Dr. G, and I, I remember last time, so hopefully you'd like us to call you Jim. Yes, indeed. Yes. So uh, I remember last time you said that. So uh, we, it's almost been a year since we've last spoke, and we're on episode 49, and we're still going strong, and it seems to be gaining strength, and we have a lot of, a lot of gamers out there. And uh, one of, I'm, I'm assuming, Jerry, Correct me if I'm wrong, but we have a lot of fans of, of Jim. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, Jim, can you, for those of you, of those out there that don't know uh, Jim, can you give us a little bit of background about, you know, how you came to, to get into games and learning and uh, just some background bio information? Okay. Well, I uh, got into games about eight or nine years ago when my current high school senior was a six-year-old. And um, I was a person who had done a lot of work on uh, learning and literacy, but had never played a video game. And I went out and played an adult one, having played Pajama Sam with my kid, and <laughs> was impressed by it, actually. And um, I was just taken by the fact of how, you know, this commercial product, which I thought would be a toy, was so difficult and hard, you know, for somebody who was new and required you to learn in a very different way. And it was very frustrating in the beginning, and then I found it um, very life-enhancing. And I asked myself, why am I now finding this life-enhancing? And the answer was, is it was allowing me to learn in a new way um, and use new learning muscles that I hadn't learned, used for a lot of years, maybe not since graduate school. And as I got into it, I realized that a, a video game is nothing but a set of problems to solve. And if you can't master them, and they get harder and harder, then you're you're not going to play the game and the company's going to go broke. So by definition, here was an industry that had to create good learning or go, go out of business. Hmm. And as I played the games, I realized that the way they were doing that learning was applying the best principles we know from research on learning. Um, whether they knew it, you know, whether they officially knew it or not, that's what they were doing. And uh, it then hit me that in this commercial product, we have our best research principles being used to create deep learning, but we don't use them in school. And that <laughs> just seemed to me a paradox. Yes. So how did you, so you started into, you know, Pajama Sam, <laughs> got yeah. into that. So what was your actual, uh, 
what was your study? What were you a professor of? What did you, why were you in education? I started my career and my training is in a field that no one cares about called theoretical linguistics that studies the abstract structure of language. It's kind of a quasi-mathematical discipline and my field of expertise was a thing called naked infinitives. There's only eight of them in English. Um, and um, the, uh, uh, as I got a little bit older, and through just historical accidents, I began to get interested more in the social aspects of language. And that led me through a you know, winding path into uh, issues about education. So by the time I was playing these games, I had written a good deal about literacy and learning in schools and out of schools. Um, uh, but I hadn't, of course, written anything about digital media. And um, when I wrote my first book, What Video Games Have to Teach Us About Learning and Literacy, I wanted it to be a virus to carry my views on literacy and learning. You know, figuring people would read stuff about the games and be turned on, and then they get infected by my views on learning and literacy. But I wrote it at a time where people were just ready to take off to try to expand games into a wider circled in entertainment and so nobody read it that way they read it as just about games well i have to i have to stop you because um i'm making a, a comparison to uh probably one of my but it is my all-time favorite author and that would be tolkien mm-hmm. and how he created uh lord of the rings that whole that whole universe yes. to as an expression of his love of language yes indeed yeah he was a, a linguist of sorts too and you know a lot of time people you know people who like to write or you know want to write you, you you write about what's turning you on i mean as an academic with tenure i can write about anything i want uh and i kind of realized if i if i'm going to play video games this much and i don't write about them then i'm going to be in trouble in my career but i had the great luxury of being able to write about whatever i please right. and you know and this work on games has actually brought me a lot more publicity than my work on naked infinitives i don't know why <laughs> okay, one last thing about are, are you a fan of Tolkien? I am, yes, okay, definitely. Okay, well, th- that could be another conversation for an- another okay. time. So okay. you got so you got into uh, you got into video games, and I, I would say it, it did it. Do you think it turned into a, an obsession? Everything I've ever done is an obsession. Uh, you know, one of the things I'm a rather well, I was going to say unique, but I bet you this is not as unique as I think. I can only write about stuff I don't know much about. Uh, by the time I become a real expert on it, uh, then you can't write about it with any excitement. Everything is, is neither black nor white, it's gray. You fudge everything, you qualify everything. By the time you're finished, it's so boring, even you're asleep. Uh, when you don't know much, you make strong claims, most of which are wrong, but they have the great thing of exciting other people and getting them to think for themselves. So. Every book I've written, and they've been in a lot of different areas, I, I write them when I don't know much. But that, I'm very excited. Yeah. That, that's awesome. That, that, that totally makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, wow. yeah. You can see, I mean, the trouble is that you can just qualify things to death until you've taken all of the sort of really exciting claims out of it, but you've also killed dialogue, because by the time you've put 50 qualifiers on it, who can disagree with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, so what, uh, I guess, what are you doing now? What are some of the projects and uh, things that are activities that you are working on? 
Well, you know, we just started uh, a center called the Center for Games and Impact at ASU with a bunch of partners um, that is really meant to take the problem that so many games are coming out and being made, bad ones and good ones, Mm -hmm. to get into areas like learning or health or social change. But there is no good pipeline uh, from design and research through dissemination and sustainable double bottom line businesses. And so that's what we're trying to do. I mean, this area is not going to work if every time something gets funded, it dies the day the funding's over. And it's not going to work if we don't do research that shows it shows the stuff is working. So the center is about this, you know, how do we get a seamless pipeline from uh, design and research right through a double bottom line sustainable business? Which is a difficult problem because making businesses in this area has turned out to be uh, much harder than people thought. Well, and we've had uh, a, a pr- former guest of our, you know, previous guest that we've had before, and as she was on a few weeks ago, Sylvia Martinez. I mean, she was involved in the gaming, I guess, the education gaming industry, and that is the biggest problem that she sees. It's it's nearly she feels it's. Uh, hopefully, I'm not putting words in her mouth, but it's very difficult to. Uh, to have a model to where you can make money and sustain it and actually have a very good game. So you have World of Warcraft or, you know, the millions of dollars that uh, uh, that was put into Star Wars The Old Republic. And to keep that model going and to have something that's also focused on the research and education part is very difficult. And that's, that's what you're saying. Yeah, and even more difficult when you want a double bottom line. That is, you're making a product like uh, one we've made, Game Star Mechanic, which is a game that teaches game design, or iCivics, which is a set of games to teach civics. Uh, you need these to be sustainable businesses to keep them going, but you have to be able to give give them away free to the poorer kids, right? You, you can't. You know, if you really want to do social good, you can't see that only the privileged kids get to buy it. So. How do you make a double bottom line company in this area is hard. In our center, it's a partnership with myself, uh, a man, a professor named Sasha Barab, who designed Quest Atlantis at uh, the University of Indiana, who's now a faculty member at ASU, and a man named Alan Gershenfeld, who used to be a top executive at Activision, Hmm. and runs a company called Eli Media now uh, that actually... uh, specializes in thinking about this problem of uh, uh, double bottom line sustainable businesses that cross over from entertainment to uh, uh, more uh, other areas of impact. Right. Well, that's, uh, I'm, I'm taking notes. <laughs> yeah, uh, because that is, uh, that is a problem. You also brought, you, you brought up having those, having students have access no matter what, their uh, their income is and that's right. something that I am personally looking at uh, I use civilization uh, mm-hmm. for my sixth grade social studies I teach ancient civilizations so the creation of civilizations and the foundations uh, civilization does a great job in doing that created lessons put all this stuff together well we're going one-to-one next year at my grade level and I'm sitting here how in the world am I going to get to get funding how am I going to get get the students access uh, to this game? And it's opened up a whole can of worms and, and different possibilities, uh, and especially because that specific game is uh, the the copies I have are on CD. Well, these uh, right, yeah. 
these new yeah, computers don't have CD drives. That's another interesting problem. You know, that company did give away earlier versions of the game to schools, but if you wanted to use the newer versions, you do have a problem. Yeah. And it, it, this is exactly what we're talking about. It's, it, it, you know, Civilization is a great game to use in the school, and furthermore, there's lots of stuff on the Internet of how to use it in school and of challenges yes. and of different stuff, and uh, uh, it, it, it's a shame that it can't be kind of either open source or embedded in a double bottom line sustainable business. But that yeah. civilization is just one example. You know, there's a new Sim City coming out that looks like it is going to be incredible for education, where every variable in the simulation will be visible and open to the player uh, as you simulate the growth of the city. And again, I'm hoping that that will be able to get to all kids, whether they're poor or rich. Right. And, you know, some of the alternatives I've been looking for, uh, there is a free sieve uh, that's out there, but it's it doesn't match up with the, all the work that I've done to connect civilization, the actual game civilization. Age of Empires has a, uh, it's a freemium, I think it's a freemium model where yeah. you can actually get access, but you can't get to other areas. I've seen some, you know, there are some models like that. Uh, I just have to mess around with it, but just giving yeah. alternatives to different students because you know here's the other thing too, uh, and I don't know your thoughts on uh, individualization of, of learning is that not all my students get into civilization. I have a high percentage that do, but finding something else that would be engaging uh, that wouldn't be civilization, that's maybe that opens up the opportunity to see other students to find something that would not be uh, cost prohibitive. Yeah, I think that that's very true. You know, Kurt Squire at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, has done a lot of work with civilization in schools and in after-school programs. And, you know, two things you find. One, of course, some people don't want to play. That's fine. Uh, but the other thing is that many kids who say they don't want to play, let's say they've played a lot of fighting games and they see this and they say, that's not my type of game. Uh, once you get them over the learning curve, which for civilization is a little bit difficult, they yeah. love the game. And Kurt has built special mobs that simplify the game and get them over the learning curve. So the first thing I'd say is, you know, you always got to do that. You've got to mod the game or do things to get beginners uh, over the learning curve. And then for people who just don't want to play games, the, the ideal thing is to get them working on another way to learn civilizations, you know, and then let two kids compare the results. Right? Yeah. Then you're getting meta thinking as one is pursuing it in one way and one is, you know, one could do it as a net quest or they could do it as a research project or they could do it as building a fantasy civilization, you know, uh, you know, all different ways. And then if the people are teaching each other and comparing, you're getting it, you're getting the best of all worlds. Yeah. And that's it. It's it's been a wonderful game. I've even had students in the past that have learned the the coding uh, to create sure. Python because it's written in Python. And some students have taken it on that road to where, yeah. you know, I might, I like the game, but you know what? I like creating even more. Sure. And that's, that's very exciting. Yeah. That's very exciting. But, so know, Kurt, Kurt and his work consists of the kids, and these are middle school kids, uh, that they mod the game as well. So they make mods of it and uh, because he wants them to think about not just designing a game in this case, but designing a simulation for knowledge building. So, do you feel that um, in this? Uh, do you feel that all teachers should use this? You know, use games and learning, or is it one of those things that 
this is just one tool. You know, all teachers are different. This is kind of where, you know, I get some teachers that talk to me that know that, you know, I love, I, I love gaming, using it in the classroom, and they are totally turned off by it. They totally think that, you know, this is not the right way to do it. Um, you know, I can show all the evidence I want. It really, it really doesn't matter. But are you, do you feel that games and learning should encompass all teachers or just those that feel that it should be used as a tool? No, I, I think it should just be those that uh, not only want to use it as a tool, but uh, can get comfortable with it and feel some ownership of it. Um, but I do think all teachers should use game-based learning in the sense of using the learning principles that are in good games. You don't have to have a game to do that. Right. You know, for example, uh, the learning in a good game means you better create motivation before you start making people do a lot of stuff. You better have a success early on. Um, there better be a way into the game that prepares you without having to read a 500-page book. Uh, there, you know, <laughs> language should be used just in time and on demand. It should be leveled so that you're prepared for each new challenge and you rapid, you rackage up the challenge base. Um, you know, all the stuff we've talked about that is, that is good learning in the games, it can be done in many different ways. The key here, though, is games are a form of problem-based learning. That is, you don't just learn facts. You learn how to solve problems, and you right. use the facts to solve the problems. And they are also forms of failure-based learning. That is, the cost of failure is lowered so that you can explore, take risks, and try alternatives. And every teacher should be teaching that way. If you teach where failure is high and you teach facts, all you get is test passing that has no correlation with problem solving or creativity. It's yeah. just a way to, way to go to work at Walmart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Jerry, uh, is that flow? Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the flow he was <clears throat> responding to, or when we were talking about that, was more of a flow in the classroom, so a positive learning environment. And yeah, problem solving would have a lot to do with that, just right. engaging that, higher levels of learning. Right. You don't want to, uh, you want to make it challenging, but not too challenging to where they fail and they're just like, I'm done with this. And you don't want to make it too easy, kind of the Goldilocks, you know, right. you don't make it too easy to where it, this is silly, uh, uh, you know. Right. Flow is built into level design. Flow is a theory that says you start people with challenges that feel doable, but feel challenging. You create a yeah. little anxiety, not too much. Right. Then the person has to practice a lot. At a certain point, once they're practicing, they get to the, the area where it's still challenging, but now they know they're good at it and they know they can do it. And that's when they're in flow. Then, eventually, in a sense, they get too good at it, right? They've totally mastered it. They could do it in their sleep. That's when you get the boss battle and the next mm -hmm. level. And then you keep creating this cycle of flow. It goes yep. from little anxiety to a feeling of mastery, to a feel, to you know, to routine expertise that gets challenged by a boss. That's the cycle of learning anything deep. Right. And uh, go ahead, Jerry. I was just gonna say I think we routinely underestimate kids too, and we we break things down sometimes because we would rather have them be easier than difficult. And uh, that's when they see right through that. You know, that's almost Absolutely. like where you get to busy work. Kids can see right through that, and then they just get bored and uninterested. Absolutely. Uh, you know, um, children, no, you know, in the literature on child language de uh, development, child cognitive development, it has been said no one has successfully underestimated a child. 
<laughs> you could well, anytime you say a five-year-old can't do X, somebody finds a way a five-year-old can do X. Yeah. You know, I, my favorite example is when PSA said, you know, kids couldn't conserve at a certain age. Like if you put out uh, 10 beads and you put them wide apart versus close together, the kid can't see they're both 10, right? Thinks the one that's longer has got more in it. Mm -hmm. uh, he can't conserve. But then somebody said, well, you changed the beads to M&Ms. They damn well know how many of them <laughs> Yeah. I, I, the... The idea that it gradually gets difficult along the way, just to give an example, uh, I'm playing Star Wars The Old Republic, uh, the MMO right now, and Good. it is, what's interesting is that uh, it's a new setup, so I'm still I'm still in the lower levels, but the idea that, you know, as I level, I'm getting new powers, I'm getting new skills, I'm getting okay. new weapons, I'm constantly changing my armor, I'm changing, all these things are changing and it's having me keep active i can't you know on my toolbar you know down below i have a number of keys that you know use certain weapons or skills and sure. those are constantly changing based upon what new things i've i've received and it's keeping me it keeps my brain going sure. uh and figuring out new techniques and new ways to it you know attack and 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 finish my quests and that uh that is i think over the years that has been more of that has been added and it has become complicated, but yet still not too complicated to where I'm like, I'm done with this. This is too difficult for me. Sure, absolutely. I mean, one of the things about that type of role playing that, uh, that is so powerful is that as you level up and get more things, they are, they are achievements that, that came from your investment in the character. Yes. So you feel, as you, that character gets more stuff, you feel totally invested in that character. That's my character. I earned that. Um, and uh, now you're really invested then in the learning that you're doing with that character. The one part I'm really enjoying about the game is it's the dialogue. And we've we talked about this before. We were comparing World of Warcraft and, and, and Star Wars The Old Republic. The one thing that uh, The Old Republic has that I think is, is wonderful is you have the dark and light side. You have choices that you are making sure. that are, you know, are, am I going to be good? Am I going to be bad? And it's funny because my best friend, Justin, we're playing this. He's a smuggler, and I'm kind of like, you know, I'm a vanguard. It's like a paladin. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm lawful good. Yeah, right. And so it's funny because who responds is based upon a role. And right. so I choose something, and then he chooses something, and we are polar opposites. So it's, it's quite funny. <laughs> that yeah, sure. some of the responses that are given, I'm like, why did you say that? He goes, I'm a smuggler. <laughs> this is what I'm gonna, this is well, what I'm gonna say. And he's like, right. you know, and he's calling me Goody Two Shoes. So it's a, uh, um, it's that part I think is quite interesting in seeing how students could respond to the choices that they're making because some of them are, are more moral decisions. Yes, that's an aspect. I mean, that the Knights of the Old Republic, even the single player games, yes. have done very well. And it's an aspect that Sasha DeBrobs tried to build into Quest Atlantis, and it's one that we could take much further. People really do want to have a choice about how to respond, and they want it to make a difference in the world of the game. And uh, we haven't done a great job. Fable tried to do it. It's never pulled it off, in my view, very well. Um, but uh, having people live with their choices, especially if they're moral choices, is a very cutting edge of gaming, I think. Yeah, and that's where that your uh, double double bottom line model would be interesting to to yeah. be able to take a game 
uh, like Star Wars The Old Republic or anything else that has those moral decisions and be able to connect it to things that you're, you know, you're wanting the students to learn about. Absolutely. You know, I, we could have made a fabulous game about the 2008 financial uh, crisis hmm. because that came out of sets of a myriad of choices uh, oh, that yeah. people were making in different institutions in different places that led to disaster. Um, and on the other hand, you know, it's easy from the outside to say, oh, it was all just stupid greed. The another thing, if you were there, you know, with the choice of shall I give up a, a $10 million bonus or shall I do this, that or the other and watch, you know, so that's important. The other thing is in complex systems like the financial crisis, uh, decisions you make can have such large unintended consequences down line. Yes. This is a very important thing in the modern world. So, you know, there could be great role-playing games at that level, but we haven't made them. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping some of your work will yeah. help get that get that going. Oh. Uh, any, other, any other projects that you are that you're working That seems like it that kind of keep you busy. It does, although I have a new book coming out that is, you know, as I told you, I, I kind of know too much about game stuff now to keep writing on it. But uh, so I have a book coming out on human stupidity, which I really enjoyed writing. <laughs> uh, so um, do you write for The Onion? No, this is not parody. I think. The oh, it's not. Oh, great. Oh, no, no. Uh, I think, you know, there is uh, there is a lot of literature that has been out over the last few years about the fact that it, it left un, untended. Human beings are quite stupid, right? It's often called brain bugs, <laughs> that we have a brain that was not really made for the 21st century. It was made for the savannah. Um, and as we do a body, by the way, that's why we're all fat. So, um, but <laughs> there is also the problem that many of us to look around say, wow, society, government, the world, is engaged in such levels of suicidal stupidity. Like, you know, when the financial crisis happened, we said it was because we had created banks that were too big to fail. And we solved the problem by making the banks bigger. But that seems <laughs> rather uh, stupid. You know, the fact that most Americans don't give any damn about evidence, right? Uh, they don't, they, you know, 60-some percent of them believe in astrology. More than 60% don't believe in evolution. Uh, even though the literature on global warming is 99 to 1 against right. it, uh, papers still publish it's up in the air, it's 50-50. Well, <laughs> by the way, you know, if we don't do something soon and you live in New York, you better get a snorkel. Right. You know? So um, the fact is, what I argue in this book is human stupidity has always been a problem. But when you put us in this world's this complicated with problems this big, human stupidity is a bigger problem. And, um, and what I ultimately argue is that humans are pretty stupid alone, but they're actually not meant to be alone. They're meant to be plug-and-play devices to plug into smart other people and smart tools. And that the real future has got to be creating collective intelligence and getting rid of this idea that you're smart by yourself. You look at a guy like Alan Greenspan, biggest expert in economics of the 20th century. When the whole economy collapses, he goes to Congress and say, I never saw it coming. Nothing I had learned in my 40 years of economics prepared me for this. I had always assumed that no business person would do anything that would harm their business. And you say, well, this is the last expert, because with this guy, he knew a lot about one thing. When the problem being caused, you needed to know a lot about a lot of things. 
that right. he needed to have talked to other people, like somebody who was an expert in human psychology that would have said, you know, Alan, I could have told you that people will harm their companies and their own self-interest. I could have told you that. You know? So the fact is that type of expertise where, you know, you learn a lot about one thing and those people tend to highly undervalue what they don't know. Remember, you know, remember, Alan Greenspan actually recommended for people to get rid of their fixed mortgages and buy mortgages with balloon payments. He recommended. Yes. Yes. This, this is, it's a level of, you know, stupidity that, you know, it's not even criminal. He, I put him in a hospital, not a jail. <laughs> well, as a social science teacher, somebody that grew up in, in the capital of the great state of Illinois, Springfield, and whose mother retired from that building, it, it, what scares me even more is the fact that, yes, we should be working together. We should be, uh, you know, getting information, gathering information from many different sources. Uh, but it seems right. like we're moving further and further apart from that. And, uh, and I, the name is, escapes me uh, right now, but uh, she wrote the book about Abraham Lincoln. And, um, oh, goodness oh, gracious. Oh, Doris Kearns? Yes, and how he believed in him out he wants you know he wanted all different viewpoints so he Definitely. could make an educated choice an educated decision and uh i feel that we are moving so much further away from that and that right. scares me yeah that's a great book i mean it, it, because lincoln wanted to be sure people would tell him what he didn't want to hear right so that a piece of information that was crucial would still get to him Right. And that is, as people are developing theories of collective intelligence uh, and crowdsourcing problems, uh, that has turned out to be one of the big principles. You've got to be sure that every piece of information is on the table. Yeah. And I, you know what? Even, even as a sixth grade teacher, I tell my students all the time, you know, you're who, how many kids I have in my classroom, 25, 30, your brains are far more powerful than my one. You will come up with ideas that I would sure. never think of, and they they impress me all the time. You know, yeah. especially I'm teaching Tolkien right now. We're reading The Fellowship mm -hmm. of the Ring, and I've read each of those books in The Hobbit probably half a dozen times each. And there's always because it's so deep. Tolkien is so rich in his writing, and they my class this year has come up with several things like I never looked at it that way before and nobody I've been teaching it for 10 years nobody else has ever come up with that before exactly. and they they thoroughly enjoy you know uh, that, hearing that but you only get this if you treat them as people who can know stuff together yes. and not people to be just filled up as little empty vessels well what scares me too is that I, I feel that the students uh, don't look at themselves that way they feel that the te I think they've been molded, and I think teachers have done that over the years. Right. Not, you know, I don't think maliciously that you know I have the knowledge, the sage on the stage mentality right. that I have all the information, and you need to get it from me. I right. I think students. I've been trying to promote to the students that you know I do know a lot of information, and I can help guide you along the way. But you know, you have the ability to gain this gain knowledge and even take it further. Or see things that I've never dreamed of seeing. Our primary assessments are still still looking for individual knowledge as well. You know, I mean, standardized sure. testing and things like that. So, yes. exactly in an age of collective intelligence. I mean, the assessment system is another example of near criminal stupidity <laughs> for that same uh, that same reason. So you're going to yes. write about that? Yeah, and you know, okay. it, 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 <laughs> you know, look, look at. I mean, Will Wright would spore 
already caught on to the fact that no matter how professional you are and your designers are, that if you make a good tool that allows everyday people to create, a certain percentage of them will create stuff better than you can. Mm-hmm. And so in Spore, you know, you get, you, you, you take the top 10% of what people make, put it in the game. Now there's next to nothing in the game from uh, rights designers. And he got a bunch of people to make his game for free. And he never got one complaint letter. Uh, how smart is that? I mean, yeah. why are they complaining? Because he resourced their creativity. So yeah. he, Spore is an example of collective intelligence. Collective intelligence, you have to have, you have to give people good tools to create, to produce, to design, and you have to let everybody in. You have to have diversity because you never know who might have that one talent or one piece of knowledge. And then when you do that, you get um, not only high level intelligence, but it doesn't, it isn't seem to be connected to age. Yeah, yeah, it, it's 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 amazing. On, especially within a school, I feel very lucky in the building that I'm in, in the middle school that I'm in, you know, and middle schools are based on teams. You know, my team of teachers, we help and we collaborate together all the time. And we are different types of teachers. And I think it's a benefit to the students because they sure. can see different styles of teaching and different ways to reach. And we help each other in, out in that way. But yet, you know, and Sir Ken Robinson talks about this, that, you know, uh, that you need to do this by yourself and don't look up the answers right. in the back of the book. But in everywhere else in the world, we are moving towards collaboration and working together, but we're not doing that right. with our students. And games allow, I mean, that's the right. other thing. Games it's allow been pointed out. Yeah. They do. And, you know, one thing we don't also do with students, so we don't, we, they can take one class from one person and another one, and they could disagree, but they never actually see the people talk out that disagreement. So they just believe everything they hear. If one class says this is true and the other one says, well, what they should see is people with a passion, like their teachers, not only collaborating, but publicly arguing together so that they learn that you have to supply evidence and argumentation. You don't just believe what somebody says. Right. It, it, well, I, I do have a positive for you because within our school district, and I know there's others that are doing this, when we do, we, you know, I don't know if you'd call it literature circles anymore, but we, we call it collaborative reasoning. Mm-hmm. And we teach the kids on how to productively uh, discuss uh, a topic and be able to cr- bring information that they have together to a, you know, to a group and to be able to work through and discuss whatever the topic is for that day or that part, that chapter of, of, of that book. And we basically have, they have guidelines, but it's basically a way for the kids to be able to create uh, knowledge, new knowledge based upon the knowledge that they bring uh, to that group. Yeah, I think that's great. You know, it reminds me, as we've, um, you know, uh, over the last couple of years, rather than kids going to fact sheets that are all written, people have put up uh, the play on YouTube, right? So you can, mm-hmm. if you're stuck, you can go watch somebody do it. See, and that's, that's great. What it's doing is it's making public how somebody else played. And if that person is better than you, uh, you learn by seeing, okay, that's what it looks like. So now yeah. I can go try it. Or sometimes when they're not better than you, I mean, I recently had this happen. I was playing Warp and went on there to look for something, and it was clear the guy doing this was not as not even as good as me. And it, all <laughs> of a sudden, it said to me, you know, hey, my judgment about my play here is wrong. 
it, it isn't that bad. You know, I'm, I'm, kids do this in school often, by the way. They think, well, I've got to be the worst, or everybody's got to be better than yeah. me. So making public what people do and letting them compare and contrast it is great, and not just for games, for argumentation and everything else. Well, and letting them see that, you know, letting them see that, you know, I make mistakes. There's yes. There are times that, you know, in the... <laughs> I always praise my wife because, you know, she is definitely my much, much better half. But, uh, you know, I am far from perfect. My wife is the closest thing. And, yes. and <laughs> there you go. So, but I tell the kids that and they don't feel as bad when they make a mistake. It, it, I don't want them to feel bad. It's the whole purpose of, of learning is that you do make mistakes and you learn from them as you go along and you get better. Yeah, my favorite example this years ago, I was teaching a course on processes of change in science, and I wanted the undergraduates to, to see different expert biologists talk in different areas of biology so they could see that in each area people agreed or disagreed in different ways and used different languages. And I had a guy in who was a really national expert in genetics, at the cutting edge of genetics, and during his talk, he forgot Mendel's laws about, of uh, genes. <laughs> yeah, for the kids, and you know, because he hadn't used those laws, he said to the cutting. But you know, so you know, he didn't get embarrassed. He 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 just turned around. He started to scribble on the board. He thought a while, and he recovered them. And you know, it let the students see. And no matter how smart you are, you can yeah. make a mistake. You know, um, Werner von Heisenberg, one of the greatest physics physicists of the 20th century, right. failed his PhD orals. <laughs> because a guy in his committee asked him how a battery worked, and he couldn't say. You're, you're one of the greatest physicists. See, we have standards to say, if you don't know how a battery works, you're a failure. This right. guy, when he, when he was taking his orals, he was already had done cutting-edge physics. Right. And he didn't know how a battery. He would have failed by our standards. That's Yeah, that's frustrating. That's frustrating. Uh, talking about, you know, discussing examples... Are, what are so, what are probably two really? I always like to start bad. Let's start bad. What are two bad examples of of games learning or what some people and and I know this irks you gamification uh, and two examples of something good. Well, I, I don't. You know, first of all, I don't. Like, examples are good or bad depending on what teachers do with them, right? So even a bad sure. game, a teacher might be doing well. Uh, as you know, I think it's a shame to use the power of games just to do what we do already in school, you know, skill and drill or that stuff like that. Um, you know, it's the chocolate and broccoli phenomena. I think it gives people a really bad um, attitude about what school is and what games are. And, and, there, and I must say, as this area has gotten huge, so many startup businesses, most of them are making chocolate and broccoli games because... That's what they think they can get into the school without changing it, without changing the assessment paradigm and the learning paradigm. So I'm not going to give you examples that I right. offend, offend a, people, some of whom are my friends. Uh, um, so that's a general, as a general idea that you know, doing the same thing, just adding a layer of game on it, is is that's bad idea. Yes, right. And, you know, now if you want a, a good example. Uh, out in your own state, there's a man named Brianno Collar, C-O-L-L-E-R. He's at Northern Illinois uh, University. <laughs> he teaches the best, he teaches the highest level of mathematics for engineering. So we're not talking kiddie stuff here. And he teaches it through a game he designed where kids, and not kids, these are the people becoming engineers. 
right. um, use a simplified programming language to design cars and racetracks and face challenges in there. You have to get your car to race on any track, and maybe there's some hummers on the track, but you can't see them, but you have a Volkswagen that can scout them out and see them, and you have to solve this through this little language, which actually replicates the math you need to learn in engineering. Now, he's not on, you can, you can see it in YouTube. You, you look up his name, you'll see it. Um, he has shown that the people using the game learn the math better than the people using the textbook. And interestingly, he's also shown that women do as well as men. Okay, now this, so this is, this is not chocolate or broccoli. This is actually situated, problem-based right. learning that requires innovation, and yet it, uh, it works a lot. But, you know, the way the textbook works is you just take math problems and solve them, you know, then get in. And, and by the way, the uh, people using the textbooks cover more ground. They finish the book. He covers only about half the ground, but the people doing the textbook didn't know it anyway, so when did it matter? <laughs> well, as a father of, of two daughters, uh, that is – I like that. I like to hear that. Uh, but then, you know, i got to get on Jerry here because uh, – Jerry, where are you attending school right now? Uh, that would be Northern Illinois University. Yeah, yeah and yeah. you're getting yeah. your – yeah, he's getting his uh, – go ahead and tell us, Jerry. Uh, well, I just actually got accepted two weeks ago on, on my birthday for uh, my Ph.D. in art education. So just right. starting that up. But I'm going to have to look up uh, Dr. Collard. Oh, he's a wonderful guy. And, uh, he, you know, what you see on YouTube is only a tiny part of what he does. Uh, I'll tell you one ex example you won't see that just blew me away. So he starts them where all they have to do is to get a little car in a virtual world, like a racing game, to go around a circle track. And it's a very simple program to build, and, uh, and it seems completely obvious. And everyone gets it wrong. The car doesn't go around. And, and he says to them, you know, you actually do know how to do this. And he gives them a PlayStation controller. And he said, just use your thumbs to move the car around. And everybody gets it around perfectly, right? <laughs> And then they think about it, and they see what they did wrong in the program. They saw they did have knowledge in their thumbs, and it transfers to their head, and then they do the program right, and the car goes around. Wow. That's yeah, pretty that's... deep stuff. That's embodied learning. That's... So, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's great. And if you ever have a chance to hear him talk, do that. But, yeah, Northern Illinois has got some great faculty. It's a great place to be. I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you see games and learning in education in five years? Well, it's, I see two possible routes. I mean, it's kind of the, the uh, route of, let's say, civilization as a game versus Farmville. Uh, you know, what Farmville does is it uses cutting-edge game design principles as well as principles from behavioral economics and customer loyalty to sell stuff, right? It doesn't do it to give challenges or problems. It does... You know, they have a microfinancing model that 90% of the people don't pay them, but the 10% who do pay a lot, and they make a lot of money. And, and that's gamification for the marketplace. And, and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, you know, it's okay. I'm a capitalist. But um, <laughs> that's not what I want my schools to do. I, I want games for challenge, problem-solving, and innovation. And yet we do know we can use games simply to manipulate people get them to either buy our product or pass our tests, right, our stupid tests. Yes. So the future is one of two ways. We're either going to make the school system we have now 
uh, much more entertaining and efficient because we'll use digital devices to uh, train people, coach them, and assess them. And we'll send three-fifths of them to Walmarts, as we do now. In other words, we'll just be used, make better service workers. Or we will say, you know, look, games are a form of collective intelligence, and we can use this to make every human smart, a participant, and to count in our society, uh, and, uh, and give it to everybody. And that will certainly challenge our society, because as you know, today we have the highest level of inequality we've had ever in yes. the United States. Um, and a society in which everybody could participate and count would not be a highly unequal one, but we do know from research it would be a very healthy one with high levels of well-being. And my bet is new levels of innovation that would put America back where it used to be as an innovative country and not a giant service enterprise. So what can we do to, <laughs> to go towards the, uh, the, your second choice, your second path? Good you know, it's, it, it's a form of social activism, and I don't mean by that, you know, getting in a picket line. I mean demanding that uh, high levels of inequality, there's a research in health and in public health that shows high levels of inequality in society make all of us less healthy, not just the poor. If you take a rich person in America and compare them to a rich person in a society with more equality, that rich person has a much better chance in America of being sick or being anxious, or uh, having bad happiness levels. So this is a robust level of research. So we have to go out and point out to people that letting people hey, count, letting Jim? them participate. Yeah? Okay. I still have you. I don't know if I have Jerry. <laughs> I don't know if, if uh -oh. I have Jerry there. Yeah, of course. We're almost Jerry. done. And Jerry. Okay, why don't we keep going? I can edit a little bit there. Okay, yeah. So my, my point just is that if you believe in the second vision, that is schools should use collective intelligence to make everybody a participant and make everybody count, we will get a healthier, more innovative society. Um, and we just need to make that argument publicly and not constantly say, oh, this is great game because it's teaching kids the same math we could have done with skill and drill. It, it's a matter of standing up and telling people there's another model, and it, it, and you don't you don't have to buy the model because you're some liberal. A society right. with equality won't work no matter how conservative you are. We know that from good research. Well, it seems to make sense to me. A, a more equal society seems to you can look at the capitalist way. More educated society, people doing uh, more and contributing more sure. means that they're buying more. Absolutely. And and, and maybe inventing more so that, yes. you know, we can compete with China and India. Yes. Uh, I just read, just popped in my head, just read this week that uh, more uh, more businesses are pulling out from China because, of course, their cost uh, to produce over there is going up. They're demanding sure. more money. And, uh, right. you know, I looked at that a long time ago and said, you know, China's 50, how many years behind us when it comes to equality as into the workforce? And eventually it'll catch up. Right. It'll catch it up. And, and because the, the, the sort of outsourcing movement's logic is just move to the lowest point. And, the, uh, and that'll continue to happen. And the lowest point might someday be Los Angeles. You know, once you get rid of unions and you get rid of any idea that people should have benefits or should be paid a living wage, then it may be Los Angeles. We don't know. That's the logic of that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jim, okay. for joining 
this was this was great. Uh, thank you for listening to this week's Ed Gamer podcast. Please follow us on edreach.us and also follow all the great podcasts and blog posts on the Edreach network. Have a great week.